I can't believe that I did that. I am such an idiot. Chances are, you've said something like this on the golf course before. But only Phil Mickelson said it after blowing the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. A quick refresher. It was 2006, the 18th hole on Sunday. Mickelson led by two with three holes to play. But he made double bogey at the last and watched a relative unknown, Jeff Ogilvie, steal off with the title. It was a heartbreaking finish, but it wasn't just the fact that Mickelson lost another U.S. Open. It was how he did it, with one bad decision followed by another, all of it coming at the worst possible time in an event that he had come painfully close to winning before. You know, he gets beat at the buzzer by Payne Stewart in 1999. He follows up his win in the Masters in 2004 with this golden chant at Shinnecock where he makes double bogey on the 17th hole on Sunday, loses that. And finally he goes to Wingfoot and it looks like everything is in place. That's Sam Weinman, Golf Digest Digital Editorial Director. He was among the reporters walking Wingfoot that day, waiting to see if Phil could finally get across the finish line in a U.S. Open. Mickelson needed just a simple par on 18 to win, but he had struggled off the tee all week. On the 17th hole on Sunday, his drive ended up in a literal trash can. He got relief from there and made par, but on 18, he found real trouble. Doesn't like this one. Going way left, way, way left. His ball careened off the pole of a hospitality tent and came to rest where the gallery was standing. So the grass was trampled down and the lie was actually decent. As someone who had struggled off the tee all day, and only needed par to win, bogey to get into a playoff with Ogilvy. you'd think Mickelson would have left the driver in the bag and went with a more conservative club. I cannot believe he didn't hit forward there. Poor club selection on 18. Hits the drive way left. Now he's under the trees. He comes rolling through with bones, and they're debating the shot. And you sort of see the line he's thinking of. He's not looking to kind of pitch it back into the fairway and take his medicine. He's looking to try to hit some sort of big cut onto the green. Oh no, it's kind of elm tree solid. The high cut hit a tree. The ball advanced only 25 yards forward, leaving Phil with another long block shot into the green. Now you're starting to think, oh my God, is he blowing this? Yes, in fact, Mickelson did blow it. His double bogey put him one shot out of the playoff and gave him his fourth of his now-record six runner-ups in the national championship. As Johnny Miller put it, it was one of the worst collapses in U.S. Open history. And to Phil's credit, he didn't disagree. By the time he emerged from the scoring area, the broadcast had ended, but he still felt obligated to explain himself, uttering the words at the trophy ceremony that, fairly or not, will likely stay with him forever. I just, I just can't believe that, that I did that. I'm, I am uh, such an idiot. So why rehash all of this again? Because Phil's headed back to Wingfoot, the scene of the crime, for another U.S. Open 14 years later. Phil is 50, with five major championships in total, but still without a U.S. Open, thanks to all those disappointing finishes. How can all of that be part of your history and not leave scar tissue? 
How can it not be in your head when you're walking the same fairways or even when you're in the same situation again? How can you not be affected by the memory of what happened that one time when it could have, should have, worked out? I'm Keely Levins, and this is Local Knowledge, where we take a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. Today's episode is not just about Phil Mickelson being a self-proclaimed idiot. It's about all of us being idiots on the golf course. It's about seeing what one of golf's most popular figures did in the tournament he wanted most and relaying it to what you've done, what your friends have done, most likely with way less at stake. But still, you've been in that moment where you wanted to execute really, really badly, and it was right in front of you. All you had to do was survive a couple more holes, and it was over. But instead, you made bad decisions, hit your worst shots, and completely blew it. In other words, today's episode is about taking your worst golf moments and not only figuring out how to survive them, but maybe even coming out stronger on the other side. As I'm talking about this, you're probably conjuring up some vivid memories, thinking to yourself, yep, the 13th hole at whatever golf course that that member guessed or the 18th tee when you were finally going to take money off your buddies for the first time. Whatever it is, you're remembering it because you've reacted poorly in a big situation and now that memory is stored deep in your golf memory bank. We look at Phil and we wanna know why. Why do we do that? Why do we become a different, often worse player when the big moment arrives? Why does the memory feel so big And how do we prevent the memory of that event from affecting us when we return to the big moment in the future? If I had the answer to that, I'd probably be doing something other than talking into a microphone in a quiet corner of my closet. So I'm going to turn to the pros, the athletes who have lived these moments, and those who work to help athletes through them. Few people know what Phil must have felt at Wingfoot, but Nancy Lopez does member of the World Golf Hall of Fame and one of the greatest to ever play the women's game. She finished second in four U.S. Women's Opens. She never won one. I know when he finished second for the sixth time, um, I cried for him. I mean, I know that feeling. I know, you know, I know he worked really hard to put himself in that situation where he could win that U.S. Open. And you know, finishing second again, I know he had to be devastated. Lopez remembers one U.S. Open where she choked for the first and only time in her career. It actually wasn't one of the four times she finished second. It was in 1985 at Baltusrol. She was one shot back of Kathy Baker after 54 holes, but shot 77 on Sunday and finished T4. On that last day, I put a lot of pressure on myself to try and win the tournament. You can't make it happen like that, if that makes sense. You've got to just let it happen by playing good golf. I mean, I really felt nervous. I was shaking. Um, I couldn't stand over shot and feel comfortable. And, you know, I would be the first to admit, but I I felt like I was choking. I never felt that in the rest of my career, that I, I felt like I was choking. And choking is a terrible feeling. You're like out of control. <laughs> you can't help those feelings. And they're all um, kind of negative, but yet 
you know, you're still trying your best, but it's like, it's just not going to happen. It was like, I'd never been in that situation before. That's, that's how that choking feeling felt. When, when you felt the kind of like choking pressure, um, do you think that it happened because it was the U.S. Open? Probably, yes. Thousands have already made the switch to the TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. Maybe you know a few of them. John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Colin Morikawa, and Jason Day, just to name a few. If they can win tournaments with it, think of what you'll be able to do with the best-performing ball in golf. So, go pick up a box of TP5, TP5X, and join the movement today. What are you waiting for? Available at your local golf retailer or tailormadegolf.com. Use promo code GOLFDIGEST for free two-day shipping on any order. There are a few reasons why we can feel like a completely different person under immense pressure, like Lopez, and why we make worse decisions, like Mickelson. In his case, at Wingfoot, you could almost see it. Watch the video of that Sunday. It's June in New York, the sun's beating down, and despite what the leaderboard might have said, Mickelson hardly felt at the top of his game. He was in such a state of cortisol going into the 18th tee. Negative emotions. Yeah, and and the cortisol kind of ran his decision-making there on the 18th tee box. That's Pia Nielsen and Lynn Marriott, co-founders of Vision 54 Golf School. They've written books and worked with pros on how to think on the golf course. In their teachings, they've actually used Mickelson at Wingfoot as a case study. I think the best way to classify them is as performance gurus. They know how to get people to play their best golf. I was told that that he could have hit it into the stands behind the 18th green and he would have gotten a drop. But again, he wasn't of the mindset, or maybe his caddy wasn't even of the mindset to know that that was possible. That often, again, speaks to that cortisol levels are so high that you can't access other perspectives. You're probably wondering what cortisol is and why Phil's was likely very high on the 18th hole. Cortisol is a steroid hormone that, when released, affects a number of functions in your body like controlling blood sugar levels, how you form memories, blood pressure, all kinds of important stuff. But what it's most famous for is its involvement in the fight or flight response when you're in a stressful situation. This is an ancient response, responsible for keeping our ancestors alive when faced with mountain lions, either fight for their lives or run away to safety. During this fight or flight reaction, your body releases cortisol, sending more sugar into your bloodstream and improving your brain's ability to use glucose, which basically gives you a surge of energy. It also shuts down functions that aren't deemed necessary for getting you out of the stressful situation. As you can imagine, none of this is necessarily helpful on the golf course. And cortisol doesn't drop until your brain perceives the threat as gone. It could speak to why Phil was so confident in trying to hit the high cut over the trees in the moment, but then afterwards felt completely at a loss for why it transpired as it did. Cortisol overtook his normal, rational mind. You probably know the feeling. You're in a tough spot, but you see only one way out. And then afterwards, it becomes clear 
Oh, of course I should have punched out. Why does it feel like we're incapable of seeing any other options in these moments? In a cortisol no, so, moment, we are incapable. Yeah. So what, 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 <laughs> what it means with that, okay, when, when we get in a stressful situation, if, you know, if we have more negative stress emotions, we create this hormone called cortisol. And cortisol makes, it, makes the higher function of the brain go dormant. <laughs> it's how test anxiety happens. It's how road rage happens. It's how we do things that aren't thought through because we, there's so much stress in the brain, we can't access it. So what happened here seems to be a symptom of that. Like, you know, that's, things were not as clear for, you know, we don't know what feel felt on the inside, but something affected that. So that's the, the big learning for the future, how to manage those emotions and the heat of winning a major championship. Another reason mistakes flare up in high pressure situations is that we've put our focus in the wrong place as we approach the shot. Dr. Fran Parazzolo is a renowned sports psychologist who's written books with golf greats like Sam Snead, worked with multiple world number ones, and helped teams, including the Yankees. He says that in competitive moments, we can either focus our attention internally or externally. And as he sees it, an internal focus in which we follow the voice in our head is usually detrimental. The science clearly shows that you're going to do a whole lot better if your focus is out there and, and distal too, not you know right in front of you, but you know thinking about using imagery on um, targets and, and ball curvature and and you know just creating like you know and Phil does this great. I mean maybe as well as anyone, but it, again, like thinking about um, what this is going to bring to me, you know, I'm, everybody's been, I'm, this is my U.S. Open, you know, it's one of the legendary courses, and that self-consciousness is deadly. Parazzolo was at Wingfoot that day and believes self-conscious thinking was likely part of the reason Phil found as much trouble as he did on the 18th. I doubt whether we'll ever really know what was on his mind, but it had to be of, you know, some variation of that. It's the self-consciousness of where I stand, um, uh, you know, how much this is going to mean to me, finishing in a blaze of glory better approaches a quieter uh, you know more faithful this is what i do i'm going to do my best and you know not really worry about any outcomes all of which would explain why phil reacted the way he did on sunday after so many close calls at the u.s open after winning each of the two previous majors Mickelson very well might have been caught up in the sheer magnitude of what awaited him at the end of 72 holes. So he's pumped up already. And then, when things go sideways, as they did with his driver, he had all this cortisol pumping through his system, none of which is going to help him get the ball in the hole any quicker. Given all of that, maybe his double bogey finish shouldn't have been the shock that it was. So now that we've got a feel for why we tend to blow it in big moments, let's get into why the memory of blowing it stays with us in such a lasting, visceral way. 
If you feel like your memories of big moments on the golf course, whether you succeeded or failed, are bigger than normal memories, it's because they are. Makes it again hotter and and more retrievable. You know, it's like ten memories instead of one when you're in a hot cognitive state. When Perizzolo talks about hot cognitive state, he's talking about when your emotions are heightened. So your brain storing memories 10 times over whenever you're in a hot cognitive state can obviously be a bad thing, even if the memories themselves are good. Perizzolo explains that if you won a tournament by hitting a hero shot, you now think of yourself as the person who can hit the toughest shot under the most pressure. That memory is imprinted in your mind much more aggressively than all those times you've made par just playing it safe. Similarly, if you really blew it in an important moment, that memory is going to be filed away more prominently than your typical hook drive into a hazard. That negative memory will become more accessible when you're needing to hit a pressure tee shot, steering your inner monologue somewhere really negative and unhelpful. So, certain memories are already big on their own. The question is, how can we stop them from getting even bigger? What more messes with it is how many times you replay it emotionally. (laughs) So, it's usually not the initial event, but it's when I keep talking about it, and media talks about it, sponsors talk about it, everybody talks about it, and it becomes so hardwired. So, it's having the discipline to... You do your own replaying and draw the learnings from it and then close the door. And when other people bring it up to keep more dissociated and, and you know, find a good way of answering and then move on to talking about other things. The smaller you make the memory, the fewer times you can bring it up, the less it'll affect you in the future. You might not feel like it, but making a joke can help. Nielsen and Marriott cite Russell Knox as an example. He had one of those nightmarish blow-up holes at the 17th at the players. And later, he tweeted out, Shanks for all the support. Humor diffuses the memory. Phil's actually using this tool in an equipment commercial that's airing now, where consumers could get a free driver if they pick him and he wins the U.S. Open this year. Come on, we all know who it's going to be. When have I ever let you down on Wingfoot? Another important tactic is controlling how other people talk about the situation. While never talking about it again might sound appealing, it's likely that if you messed up in front of a lot of people, it's going to come up. Nielsen and Marriott helped LPGA Tour player I.K. Kim with this after she missed a 14-inch putt to win the ANA in 2012. A few months after the miss, Kim approached the two coaches in search of help with how to deal with the loss. She was being all the lead stories because of her missed putt. <laughs> so, well, we just helped her. We just said, you know, IK, you are the story. <laughs> you know, I mean, so you can't run away from it. And so why not, you know, face it head on? And so we talked to her about just talk to the media that you're going to talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah, and also, like, <laughs> what is it you learned from this? And what would you want to tell them? That feels good to you instead of just talking what I missed the path. What, what do you want to say? Well, don't wait for the question. What, what do you want to say? Thanks to her preparation, Kim owned the press room. She told the story in the way that she wanted to tell it, from her perspective. 
eliminating the opportunity for someone else to define her memory of what had happened. In other words, she owned the narrative. Want proof? Five years later, Kim won the Women's British Open, her first major championship. All right, so now we know why these moments happen and why the memory of them can be so hard to shake. But what do you do when you're Phil Mickelson back at Wingfoot? Or in our case, when we inevitably arrive back at the finals of the member guests, the club championship, the high school golf tryouts, how do we manage the situation so the negative memory doesn't dominate us? First, don't be the person who messes up and then just says, I'm never going to think about it again, because that's just not realistic. If you put three OB at your home course on the final hole of the club championship with everyone watching, that's going to slip into your mind the next time you're on that hole, and probably for a while afterwards. Realize it's going to happen. Accept it. And then, importantly, know what your tendencies are when that stressor arrives. My shoulders tighten up or my tempo gets super quick. You need to know with what do I need to do differently and like actually be honest about that I have this memory. Everyone reacts differently in stressful moments. Some people get really tentative. Some people go big like Phil. Some people's tempo gets really quick. Some people spend too long over the shot and psych themselves out. Whatever your tendency is, know it so you can avoid it in the next pressure moment. Ideally, you wouldn't have to make decisions while in these heightened stressful states. Obviously, that's not an option on the golf course. You can't just wave the flag, say, sorry, feeling a little too stressed out. Can I come back tomorrow? As great as that would be. In golf, you cannot, like, not make a decision, right? But you have to manage the cortisol buildup during the round. Yeah, or, or, or how you react to it. So, good news. You can keep your cortisol low throughout the round, so when a really stressful moment hits, the new dose of cortisol doesn't completely overwhelm you. There are a lot of players that learn in between shots to manage their emotional state, and they know when it's the final round of a major championship, you need to do it even more. What are some of the best ways to do it? Nielsen and Marriott say the time between shots is critical. Give your brain a break. Focus on breathing. Think of being in a place other than the stressful moment. Thinking about something other than what you have to do during those times between shots will keep you from getting ahead of yourself or letting anticipation and tension build. Even chewing gum on the course can help, something Mickelson has been doing a lot more of lately. If you manage yourself well throughout the round, you're more likely to handle the difficult situation well when it arises. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. Experts like Perizzolo, Nielsen, and Marriott all say you can also do yourself a lot of favors by framing how you think about the moment. When we want something too much, we're more likely to make mistakes. 
I realize this sounds contradictory. Because intuitively, it feels like really wanting something can only be a good thing. In a lot of ways it is. It motivates you to practice. It gets you to work hard. But when the moment arrives and you're face to face with achieving the goal, really wanting it can actually become detrimental. It goes more like a bell curve. You need to want it. But when we want it like too much, we start forcing it or expecting things, it, it backfires. So it's, it's for many to learn to know I need to want it enough and have the willpower, but also back away and realize no matter what I shoot today, the world is not going to change attitude. And it's, it's, it's finding like what I need more of to get to my sweet spot of wanting it. So all of the usual simple tools you use to hit decent shots you can't access in this hot cognitive moment. Instead of slipping into the easy state of, I want to win this so badly, I can win this, I have to win this, you have to find a much calmer headspace to work from. We've made the distinction between not caring and not minding, you know, what's, what's going on. Uh, um, so I care about my performance and I want to shoot the best score I can, of course, I want to win, but I'm not going to mind that is, you know, open my mind to other information or other emotions based on what's going on here. And again, that ties in with the whole idea of doing this for the joy of doing this. This gets back to what Perizzolo was talking about at the beginning, this self-conscious state that Phil was likely operating from that we all tend to operate from. That whole thinking about the self is a bad deal. That, again, people like Hogan learned, you know, not to do. Not to care what people were thinking or saying. Um, and to, you know, focus on, you know, his, his work at hand. Perizzolo tells a great story about Ben Hogan. He was playing in the 1959 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. Claude Harmon was in the field, and Wingfoot was where he was the head pro. Harmon was convinced he'd feel obligated to talk to members as he was playing and get distracted. He told Hogan he anticipated he'd play poorly and miss the cut. He said, no, you won't. You know, your head's down, and you, you know, don't, don't notice anybody. Claude finished third. The simple act of keeping his head down helped reduce the sensory overload that came with the situation. It's a great way to stay focused, to keep that inner monologue on what you want to be doing, not what others are thinking, not what could happen or what should happen. Perizzolo says other sensory tricks work, like wearing your hat low or squinting. You know, it's, it's almost impossible for your mind not to run away with you. Um, if you see things that are threatening or, or whatever, you know, rewarding goals. By physically limiting your vision by wearing your hat lower or squinting, you're more likely to keep your vision on where you want the ball to go instead of letting it stray to where you don't want it to go. Hold on to the vision of your target, not all the terrible places the ball has gone in the past and could go again. Of course, this isn't to say you should pretend the hazard isn't there. I'm not suggesting any dishonesty with yourself. I'm suggesting just 
control sensory input so that you can improve the motor output. And that's really what it's all about. Figuring out a way to navigate through emotional, stressful, pressure-filled, memory-charged moments on the golf course. For Phil Mickelson, it might be the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. For you, it could be the finals of the B flight at your member guest. The definition of a golf moment that matters is going to vary from one person to the next. What's the best thing you can do when you're in that situation next time? Know yourself. Be honest with the player you are what you usually do when you're nervous, and try to put your focus on the shot itself, not all those heavy layers of what converting that shot could mean for you. Imagine it's flight, not the claps on the back and the beers you'll be bought if you win. And please, please, don't go for the hero shot. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried, with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music is Up Folk by Ketza. You can subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and we welcome a review as well. Also, for expert picks, betting advice, and insights into the action on the PGA Tour, please also make sure to subscribe to our Be Right podcast.